Good evening and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight we're doing a live recording and filming of Clarence McDonald and Evolution. When you listen to tracks that Clarence McDonald has played on, you begin to appreciate the subtle elegance of what a master arranger and keyboardist brings to the musical table. James Taylor's Shower the People wouldn't be quite what it is without our guest Silky Rhodes playing. Bill Withers' Lovely Day wouldn't be the legendary classic without his elegantly executed parts. The emotions Best of My Love needed his touch. Clarence McDonald delivered every time. As a seasoned composer, producer, arranger and keyboardist, Clarence seems to bring a sophisticated feel to every project. He has toured and performed with some of the best. James Taylor, Ray Charles, Carol King, Ella Fitzgerald, Linda Ronstadt, Boz Skaggs, Justin Timberlake, and many more. Inside Music Cast welcomes a true classic, Clarence McDonald. Hey Clarence, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. I hope you all are having a good time there. Hey, listen, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank our very good friend, uh, Leland Sklar. Lee, if you're out there, uh, because he had an awful lot to do with uh, hooking us up with you. So uh, if something does, it goes wrong here, just just blame Lee, okay? <laughs> okay, I can do that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Lee and I have been friends way back in the, since the James Taylor days, and we remain great friends. Good folks always remain good, and he has been one of the true princes of the music industry. Definitely. Uh, definitely. Yeah. You uh, you came highly recommended. He said, hey, you're going to have a good time with Clarence. So, um, you know, Clarence, when we normally talk to our guests, one of the first questions uh, always seems to be sort of like, uh, well, what did you play in your first gig? And and we always get the typical response, clubs, etc. you know, but but yours is rather dubious and <laughs> because your first gig sort of makes me laugh a little bit. You were uh, playing piano for the Angeles uh, funeral home on Jefferson in Central at the age of 12, which I find yes. sort of <laughs> sort of humorous, but it, <laughs> confirm that or deny it right now. <laughs> no, that is actually what happened. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the story real quickly. Normally you go in the back and you play behind the curtain. You know, they had services and then you'd play the hymns and the songs that for the singers for funerals. Mm-hmm. And... I came in the back way, and there was, you know, they always had a few guests, as I like to refer to them, or cadavers in there. (laughs) And I'd gone to the organ, and I was sitting and playing. In fact, I remember the song, which was Old Rugged Cross, Mm -hmm. and there was a service going on, and people were, you know, mourning the loss of their dear loved ones. And I looked back, and the body that I had passed was sitting up. And oh my gosh. I turned back around because I thought, you know, you know you're just <laughs> probably just spooking yourself or imagining something. I turned back around again, and I looked, and it was still sitting up. Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? And um, I can't imagine <laughs> what it must have looked like to the people who were there at the service because all of a sudden there's a streak that comes from behind the curtain screaming. I hurtled the casket and ran right out the main aisle out the front door, and the thing that made it so amazing was my father worked at 42nd and Central. I lived at 56 uh, and Hooper. I was so scared, I ran right past where my father worked and kept running until I got home. <laughs> and, and so that, that for me, and it was so amazing because after I told my father, and later he said I'd explain to me, he said, you know, sometimes when they're doing embalming, if there's air in the line, It'll cause the body to turn or move or even sit up. Oh, my God. And he actually took me back down later that night. He said, no, come on. Yo, the only way you're going to get past this is to see it right now. So he put me in the car, drove me back to the funeral home. <laughs> he drove you back? Let me see that same guy that I saw raising up and found out he was still dead. <laughs> you know, the only way that this story could get any better is if he took you back to the funeral home and, and the dead guy that you saw sitting up was playing the organ. <laughs> <laughs> now, did not have been going down that aisle yeah. one more time. Now he's now he's stealing your gig. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, we may have had to fight. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, so over the, so over the next so you're 12 years old. You finish this gig and and you you do your thing. I mean, um, that was the beginning of it, and you started playing. Uh, you know, take us up to the age of 16 because by the age of 16, that's sort of a, li- a different little phase where you start playing clubs. But you know what to, what brought you up to the age of 16 that, uh, you know, launched you into sort of playing professionally? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I always enjoyed music, and I was always studying music, and that's also what I was taking in school. 
And what happens is you get your little groups. And the thing that I liked about those days, which unfortunately we don't have now, there aren't a lot of clubs where young bands can go and play and hone their skills. Mm-hmm. In the 60s and the 50s, there were, in any town, there were like 40 or 50 small little nightclubs. And you'd have the little bands, and you went and played. And if you got better at it, you started playing bigger clubs, and you started learning more. Mm-hmm. And you got better better at doing what you did. But that's what happened to me. And I lived right around the corner from a club called Memory Lane. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny because there was a singer, Sam Fletcher, and a couple of other really well-known singers from the 50s and 60s. And I started playing with them. And since I was underage, they would make me go home on the break and then come back. <laughs> so I started doing that and kept getting better at it. And then when I was in, I think, the 11th grade in high school, Charles Lloyd, the saxophone player, was doing his student teaching from USC Mm -hmm. over at Dorsey High School. And he was playing with a guy named Chico Hamilton, who was a famous jazz drummer at the time. So I actually started playing with Chico Hamilton when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Lloyd actually played a little bit with um, Cannonball Adderley, too. I mean, he he played the whole circuit, right? Oh, yeah. Oh no, Charles yeah. Lloyd was the guy. If I'm correct, I think he's he's still recording. I think uh, he may have just cut a new album, I believe, just just recently. You know? Yeah, from what I understand, he's still around, living in Malibu, out here in, uh, on the beach in California. Right, right, right. Well, you know, in that time, the era, where in the Charles Lloyd era, I mean, you there were a lot of uh, serious, real, real straight up type of jazz players. You know, uh, you played with uh, a singer from Chicago who was on Impulse Records at that time, which uh, which was really famous for that the the Coltrane, Max Roach, and Ray Charles. You know, because they were on that label Impulse, and her name was uh, Lorez Alexandria. Is that correct? Oh, I must tell you that story. It seems like I have a story for every name. <laughs> tell me, tell us here. The first time I went to play with Lorez Alexandria, there mm-hmm. was a club up on Sunset Boulevard, and I remember coming in, and I said, "Hi, I'm my my name is Clarence McDonald." She said, "Oh, nice to meet you. Where's your father?" <laughs> I said, "My father." I said, "He's at work." And she said, "No, I mean the piano player." I said, "No." I'm the piano player. <laughs> and she looked at me like, no. And so I played two or three tunes, and I think after the second or third tune, it was like, oh, he's the piano player. He's the piano player. He's, he's we, the piano we, player. we laughed at that for like, I mean, <laughs> over the next 15, 20 years, whenever I saw her, the opening line was, where's your father? <laughs> How long did you play with her? Off and on for probably 10 years. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, whenever she was in town or I was in town, if she was working and I was available to do it, I was always happy to play with her because she was, first of all, a great singer and just a nice lady to be around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, exactly. So I guess uh, you went on to uh, Cal State, is that correct? Yes. And it was, I think it was, I think you were, uh, it, it was your sophomore year when uh, you started working with, and I believe touring with Ray Charles, is that right? Yes, in fact, another story. Every time you bring up something, I've got a story to go with. And I always like to mention this guy's name. His name was Dr. Hugh Mullins. He was the head of the music department at Cal State. Uh And when I got a chance to go play with Ray, and I told him, I said, well, you know what? I'm in school, and I don't know what to do. And he said, well, come to my office later, and I'll talk with you. And he sat me down. He says, I'm going to tell you something. He says, if we could do what it is you're being asked to do, we probably wouldn't be teaching school. He says, what I'll do for you is this. You can go out on the road. I will send you the midterms and finals. You fill them out, send them back, and I'll give you B's in all of your music classes. Mm-hmm. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me in wow. the sense that what he made me understand is we're teaching you theory and stuff from books, which is valuable. Right. What you're getting ready to get is the real practical application. Exactly. And I always tell that story because, unfortunately, once I got to the point as a record producer, I remember every year I would get maybe 20 or 30 resumes from students graduating from USC or UCLA, and it was like, okay, I've graduated. Okay, world, I'm, I'm here. Right, and exactly. And it was kind of like, oh, boy, oh, boy, you don't get it. You need to find out what the real players do, because the difference between 
academia and what you have to do when the red light turns on in the right. recording studio right. is the difference between whether you will succeed in this industry or not. Exactly. You know, past musicians, uh, Clarence, have mentioned that uh, the fact that they've, quote-unquote, started playing sessions after a certain time, and that's the way they put it. But but you actually, I think on your, even on your website, you write something a little differently. You say that you were introduced to the art and business of session recording, which is directly what you're addressing right now. Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they go hand in hand. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And generally, what you find out, well, because it was being on that end of the business, Session musicians are different animals from what I call regular band players because, first of all, it's a different level of intensity mm-hmm. that you have to acquire to be really good. You also have to learn to be flexible, and it helps if you can read music and you're comfortable doing it. Yeah. I want to step backwards uh, and go back to this the Ray Charles uh, topic here because we kind of skimmed the surface about – you know, you being a sophomore at Cal State and then, uh, you know, launching into a career with, with Ray. But I wanted to find out, you know, dig a little deeper and find out how did you get involved with Ray? How did he find out about you? And and what was it about Clarence McDonald that, that Ray Charles was interested in? Okay, well, first of all, let me, say, let me say it like this. Ray Charles, they use the term genius all the time. Yeah. He truly was exactly that. Mm-hmm. He could play piano, saxophone, and any other instrument he wanted to. And I'm not talking about, like, he could try and play it. Right. He was an accomplished saxophonist. He could sit there, we had a band, and he could sit there listen to the band and say, okay, third trumpet, you know, that's an E instead of an E flat in bar 37. Yeah. He had the biggest ears. Well, first of all, we lived about 12 blocks from each other. Really? Yeah. And how I ended up getting with him is sometimes Ray used to take opening acts. And I don't know if you saw the movie Ray, mm-hmm. but there was yeah. a part in there where he'd just come back from Boston and he was detained by the local constabulary <laughs> or he was adopted <laughs> by the police. Right, and right. <laughs> I was actually on the plane. Oh, really? Yes, I was on the plane. Mm-hmm. But there was a group that was an opening act for the Ray Charles show, and the group was called The Vocals. Right, and the reason you never heard of that group is because the next year they changed their name to the Fifth Dimension. Right, right. <laughs> so that's how I had been working with them. The Ron Townsend was the custodian at my high school. Look, Ron was, Townsend was, was he really? Because Marilyn McCoo and I went to high school together. Oh, really? Oh, and man. Lamont Mclemore and I were roommates. So oh my lord! I was the musical director for the group. Nice. It should have been the sixth. That's how we ended up uh, with Ray Charles. You actually could have been the sixth dimension, huh? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, and timing is everything. Yeah. 1965, they met with Jim Webb and got the song Up, Up, and Away. Mm -hmm. Uh Me, I got a draft notice, and I ended up Up, Up, and Away in Vietnam. Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, life is not always fair. My goodness, you know that that was right around the late the late sixties uh, that that happened, and you know you're right. The that up up and away was it was a huge 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 hit, and uh, I remember I remember that when I was a kid. And yeah, so, well, but but you ended up in Vietnam. Yeah, they wrote me a letter. The song is becoming a great hit. I said, well, funny you mentioned it. We had three or four hits in where we were last night too. <laughs> Different kind of hit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, t- tell us just a little bit about that. I'm very curious. In, in Vietnam, they actually, I mean, you were, on, you were on the front line, man, you know? Well, actually, in Vietnam, the front line was wherever they decided to draw it at any given time. Right. That was the first war in U.S. history where it was not a conventional war where you go to your base camp and then you go out and fight each other. Mm-hmm. We, well... You learn what terror really is. Actually, I'm still being treated now for PTSD. Interesting. Okay. And what happened is we moved into a base camp, and you've got to remember, these people had been fighting the French and the British 10 years before we even got there. So True. they were in 30 years of continuous mm-hmm. war. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And where our base camp was, they had tunnels directly under it. So every night they were coming up inside our perimeter and killing us. And it took us three or four months before we found out how they were doing it. But you get a good lesson in terror 
Because war is probably one of the worst things you can ever be involved in. And I always tell people that they see the movies and stuff. There's no glory in war, and it never proves who's right or wrong, just who's left. Mm, That's amazing. You know, I had an interesting question. You know, like yourself, so many people were just, you know, uh, were drafted and, and sort of plucked out of, you know, what they were doing with their life and then put into that situation. And you being a musician, tell me first, how long were you in Vietnam? A year. As a matter of fact, I left Vietnam the morning of the Tet Offensive, which was January 7, 1968. Okay. The place I left from, Benoit, they overran it later that day. Mm-hmm. Wow. But you being uh, a musician and, and you having your career, you know, kind of your career was budding and it was going, you know, you were really uh, in the, the throes of your, um, of your career at that point. And, and uh, during that time in Vietnam, I mean, it's probably nothing you could really think of because of the, the situation you were in. But, but as far as like just, you know, this may sound strange, but keeping your chops as far as a musician is concerned, did you even think about that or have time to think about music at that point? Could you practice? Could you, you know, did you have... Uh, the, it was a full-time job just trying to stay alive yeah, yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, you'll be surprised how some things become very unimportant yeah. when you get involved in war. Absolutely. I'm sure. The thing you try to do best is keep your sanity and keep your life. Yeah. You came back, uh, what was it, in 68? Yes. When you came back, uh, it was probably different music and that type of thing. And uh, I just compiled a very short list of some tunes that you might have heard. And and just for the sake of our audience, too, this is what was playing on on, on 68. I mean, you had the Beatles, you know, with their Hey Jude. You had Simon and Garfunkel with Ms. Robinson, Mason Williams, Classical Gas, Smokey Robinson, Second That Emotion, and it went on. Sergio Mendes, Look of Love, and and uh, and even the Fifth Dimension they had at that time when you got back, their career had, had not stopped, and they came out with Stone Soul Picnic, you know? Yep, and I'll tell you the one thing I did remember most about coming back, because when I left, there were no miniskirts. And when I came back the first time I saw one, I knew life was wonderful from there on in. <laughs> well, you didn't let the war stop you, and we're, we're very much and glad that you came back and you immersed yourself again into the music because uh, um, that brings us to where we are today, you know? <laughs> well, it was a time of adjustment because I know for the first probably eight months or so, yeah, it was just trying to get used to every time a car backfired or something, yeah. you hit the ground. And the worst thing for me is I'd come home and I was going to stay with my mother for a couple of weeks and she lived down the block from a Catholic school. And I think the second day I'd come home, it was raining. And i never forget, it was a Volkswagen, which I saw later. And they used to make that backfiring sound. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it fired and I dived into the flower bed in the mud. Did you really? And these kids were walking by and they were looking at me like, What's wrong with him? Yeah, I just yeah. turned around. I went in the house, and I think I spent two to three days without even coming out the front door because oh I realized goodness. that I was way away from where civilian life was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, once you returned home from Vietnam, what was it? Uh, how did you get yourself back into the music scene? I mean, you'd been gone basically for a year. Was it easy just to to get back into sessions and and doing the things you were doing before, or, or what? Uh, how did you get back into it? No, no, actually, like I said, I left in 66, uh, I came back in 68, uh-huh. and when I first got back, uh, you just kind of try to find yourself as a human being, mm-hmm. and since music was always a part of my life, slowly I started getting back into it again, mm-hmm. and as you get your feeling of kindness and warmth back, I think that's really what the music is, it's an expression of what you're feeling inside, I had to get a better set of feelings going on inside. And once I did that, then the music became fun again. Sure. And as you're playing and making it fun, then people want to call and play with you. Right. Yeah. And so um, what point along the way did arranging sort of creep into the picture in, in your in your career? Yeah, really. Well, that all, too, was part and parcel of having been in school. Mm-hmm. Because the one thing, and I say this for all musicians again, if you can write what it was you heard played, mm-hmm. you have a better chance of understanding it. Sure. So That's true. I was always, because of the academic side of it, I always, anything, even if I went to a session where I liked something I'd heard, I'd ask the arranger at the time, can I have the music? You know, mm-hmm. I'd like to take this and study it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and even yeah. today, I still do that. I have a friend of mine, George Calandrelli, mm-hmm. who does like a, 
Celine Dion, he did the Tony Bennett duets album. And I'll call sometimes, hey, I'd like to see the score to this. I'm always fascinated by how many different combinations you can get with 12 tones. Sure. It's it's amazing. You said, you know, that the academic background really, it it gave you some leverage. It gave you some, uh, uh, a competitive advantage in looking at music a different way than a person who comes out or doesn't go to school and learns by ear. I mean, it's a totally different uh, mindset, isn't there? It really is. Well, it's a different... I just put it like this. It gives you more options. I have a friend yeah. of mine, and he always says, I don't read music, even though he does. Mm-hmm. His name is David T. Walker, but he plays so great that everyone wants him on the record because he knows how to listen to a song. And I know a lots of musicians who say they don't read, but if you play the song for them once, they know every break everything in it. Right, right. The idea is not to be a good reader, it's to be a good player. Mm-hmm. Reading can help you do that. Yeah. But nobody ever bought a well-read record, they bought a well-played record. <laughs> right, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard it like that. That's great. <laughs> you know, you worked on several projects, uh, you know, after you got back and over the next uh, decade, you know, you, you hooked up with a lot of people, one of them being uh, Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire fame. And uh, you work with him uh, on a re- record that was really uh, amazing. It was for a group called The Emotions, and the album was Rejoice. And uh, the cut was Best of My Love in 77. Talk to us a little bit about that collaboration with uh, Maurice White. Okay, well, I first met Maurice when he came out here. He was working as a drummer with uh, Ramsey Lewis. Mm-hmm. And then he came out and started doing sessions, and he said he was going to put a group together. And actually, I introduced him to Al McKay, mm-hmm. the guitar player with the group. So he got his brothers, Al McKay, and a few other folks, and you see what happened from there. But with the emotions, what had happened was I had written some songs, and the album before Rejoice, there was an album called Flowers. I had given three songs. One of them was Your Special Part of My Life. I had sent that into the company for them to record, wanted them to hear it, and Charles Stepney, who was the real genius behind Earth, Wind, and Fire, I mean, he wrote the scores and did the music. He was just a marvelous guy. Mm-hmm. I sent him the tape of the song, and he called. And it was kind of like when your hero calls. <laughs> and he was really, he says, I understand what you're doing with this tape. He says, if you listen, just with the piano part, you're playing the whole arrangement, what the strings and horns should be doing. And he was right, and most people never heard it. Wow. So what happened was he was working on the Earth, Wind, and Fire records. Uh, Spirit was the name of the album. Okay. Okay. And it was over at Warner Brothers, and this was on a Thursday. I went by the meeting. And from the time we were introduced, we just got to talking to each other. And at one point, somebody had to come and find us because they were getting ready to... They needed him to conduct the orchestra. Mm-hmm. But... I said, you're working? You know, we had such a great time. And he says, well, I'm going back to Chicago on Saturday. When I come back on Monday, we're going to sit down and we're going to start doing some work together. Yeah. Unfortunately, he went home. He had a heart attack and he died on Saturday. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) But that initially is how I got with Maurice was because the album before I ended up replacing Charles Stepney, which Look at that. something I never really wanted to do because I, that was a man I wanted to study and learn from. He oh, was a man. true genius. There was a, a record called Come to My Gardens, mm-hmm. uh, Minnie Ripperton. Right, yep. yeah. And he did that. That was him. And the reason it worked so well is because one of my other writing partners, which Maurice signed, was Denise Williams, who sounded like Minnie Ripper. Yeah, yeah that's Denise, true. Yeah, exactly. And I'd written a bunch of songs with Denise, uh, Silly, and This Important to Me, and mm-hmm. there was one, That's What Friends Are For. Right. And it's not the one you probably know. Ours yeah. was the first one <laughs> done with Johnny Mathis and Denise Williams. Oh, okay. Nice. Interesting. Well, Maurice, you know, he was a Memphis guy. You know, he came from Memphis. And, uh, I mean, it's so sad about the, you know, who you had to replace. But, you know, by the time you started working with Maurice, had he brought in the Memphis horns already? Were they already part of the the whole? Oh, you mean the Phoenix horns? The Phoenix horns. I'm sorry. Right, because the thing that makes it so funny is I produced the Memphis horns. I produced that Back (laughs) to Memphis album. Did you really? Yes. 
That's neat. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, it's accident. But it was the Phoenix horns that uh, that that went into. Right. That was yeah. The Phoenix horns was the Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's interesting. So it's around all that same time that uh, Motown Records had just finished moving uh, its operations to L.A. Right, right. You know, at, around that time, Diana Ross was big. So were the Jackson Five. And how much uh, did you work with Motown? And, and did you ever have a chance to work with Barry Gordy? I've got a picture with Barry and his sister. Actually, I'm listed in the acknowledgement section of Barry Gordy's autobiography. Oh, really? Really? Look at we that. were the guys. I always tell folks. We were in town when Motown came to town. <laughs> That's good. Most of the records, all of the Diana Ross records, the yeah. Jackson Five, I did most of that uh, recording work. Look at that. There That's were like neat. four or five piano players in town, right. guitar players, and we did all of the work for Motown. And actually, that's how we ended up doing the Osmond records because they hired all of the guys who had done the Jackson Five records. Okay. Well, well, name some of the guys that you were playing with uh, on all those on that Jacksons and Osmonds. Who who was that? David T. Walker mm-hmm. with guitar. Dean Parks would be playing guitar sometimes. Oh, okay. Ray Parker would be playing guitar. Parker, yeah. Bass would be Jameson because he's moved out here. Right. Right. Wilton Felder. Yeah. Drummers would be Gene Pello. Uh, James Gatson. Uh-huh. I guess, now you got me going back in the archives. <laughs> yeah, that's Eric good. Coleman would be playing vibes and percussion. Yeah. Uh, Victor Feldman sometimes. Oh, yeah. And Gene Page, who did all of the stuff with Barry White, would do a lot of the arrangements for Motown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. My goodness. Uh, a bunch of legacy players now today, you know, that you look back and, and these guys are just total legends, you know? That just means we're really old. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> well, it's true. They say, oh, you're a legend. Oh, you think I'm that old? Okay. <laughs> legend just means retired, but that's not what you guys are about for sure. <laughs> no, but I will tell you a funny story real quickly. Uh, Justin Timberlake, yeah. he has, um, I think his record came out a year last year, a year before last, Future Sex. Mm-hmm. Yes. The average age in the band was 60 because he liked... <laughs> Al Green, and I played some shows with Al Green. It's amazing. And like I said, I had produced the Memphis Horns, and he was from the Memphis area. Uh-huh. And he ended up getting James Gatson on drums. Oh, he got really? Norris Blackman, who was the guitar player with uh, Bill Withers. And myself uh, playing organ and uh, other sort of keyboards. So the thing I like when I tell people is, we may be old, but we're not over the hill yet. Because I'm on a Justin Timberlake record, so I yeah. can't be that old. Okay. Well, I got to tell you, that gives me newfound respect for Justin Timberlake. That's very cool. <laughs> that is very cool. That's. I mean, it, was that by his choice? So what he? Yes. That's interesting. That's really cool. Hey, he's been very clever and very smart about how he's gone about stuff. Because uh-huh. I always tell people. If you don't know where you came from, you probably don't know where you're going. And that's yeah. one of the sad things I've seen with a lot of the music we've got. Definitely. Today because that was one of the reasons I stopped playing for a while. I would go to sessions and you'd have guys ask, well, can you play like it is on this record? And it's like, wait a minute, that is me. Really, if you don't do any research, you're not going to be creative. because. Right. All great music is a combination of what came before you. Exactly. None of us are playing any notes that haven't been played before. Exactly. It's putting them in a different combination. And if you've got no background and nothing to draw from, you can't go very far. Well, I, I appreciate Justin Timberlake's appreciation of, mm-hmm. of the talent that, you know, that he, he dug up for that album. I mean, that's, that's really cool that he found you. And, and uh, obviously, he's, he's studied you and some of the other players and appreciated what you do. Absolutely. Makes Feel good. No. <laughs> in fact, right now I've got one other story about that one. Back in 1977, 1978, there's a jazz singer, Nancy Wilson. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. I produced an album on her called Music on My Mind. Uh-huh. It didn't sell at the time, which is truly unfortunate because it was a great record. But this last year, Erica Badu has a record out called Honey. Okay. The sample that they used to do the song came from a song I'd written with Fritz Basket and David Shields for Nancy Wilson, 1978. And I truly thank them because I don't even know how they found the record because I had to find it in Europe. It's been out of print for 25 years. But they found it, 
used a sample from it, contacted us, and I'm thanking them because I just got a royalty check from BMI. So <laughs> nice wonder. And Erica Badu, Clarence McDonald, thanks you. That's, a, that's great. And you know what's interesting about that? And I think it's really cool that these newer artists are going back and, and finding you know, this kind of work, even if it's sampled, because I think what they're doing is they're search. everybody's searching for a new sound. And, and a lot of what, you know, a lot of the sounds we have, everything's so synthesized now, you know, everything's, there are so many samples and so many loops out there, that, you know, and a lot of them are, you know, synth generated for the most part. But what they're doing is they, the way we record now, the way we record digitally, it, the sound is different. I mean, it's so much, it's so different than when we recorded analog. And, and the way we mic, the way the rooms were, you know, just everything's so different. That you probably can't repeat the same kind of sound that you guys could generate, you know, 30 years ago. Oh, no. I loved it one time in the studio. It was an engineer. and We were doing a live session, and the engineer came out looking to see where he was going to put the MIDI cable on the drums. <laughs> <laughs> it was very hard not to just fall off the instrument. <laughs> that's great. That, that takes me to something that's going on right now. I've got a CD out now. It's Clarence McDonald and Evolution right. live from Hollywood. Right. And the reason for that is exactly what we were talking about. They have lost the art of people playing with each other. Right, exactly. And that's why they're going back and sampling so much stuff. There's a feel that you get when human beings interact exactly. that you can't get following a click track or doing computer stuff. Right. I have a computer. I write a lot of stuff with computer. Right. But my personal preference is playing between human beings, and that's why that CD is out right now because I just set out a friend of mine and said, man, why don't you just get a group and go play? Yeah. And the first time I decided to play was at a place here in uh, Los Angeles, Catalina Bar and Grill. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so there. once yeah. I made the commitment to play, one of my friends, Al Ramirez, said, I'm coming to record it. And another friend of mine, David Hampton, said, I'm going to bring a crew in to film it. So what started out is, yeah, let me just put a group together because, first of all, it's going to give me a chance to show folks what it's like playing as a band. Yeah. It turned into something much bigger. And... The night we did the show it was October 3rd of 2007. Uh-huh. It was like having 40 years of friends in one room. Oh, Bill wow. Withers and his wife, Marsha, came. Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis came. <laughs> wow. Ray Parker, uh, David T. Walker. I wow. mean, it was, I had so many folks in one room that I had worked with over the years that I was so glad I recorded it. Yeah, and definitely. now, this year, we're putting it out because... What I want to do again is just let people know the joy that happens when you have oh, human yeah. beings playing with each other. Yeah. Hey, Clarence, Eddie, let's uh, take a break here and listen to uh, some of those amazing human beings playing with each other. We happen to have one of the tracks here from uh, Clarence's new CD, Live from Hollywood. This is the Hall & Oates classic, Sarah Smile.
was Sarah Smile, recorded live at the Catalina Bar and Grill in Los Angeles by our guest today, Clarence McDonald. I've been to the Catalina Bar and Grill with my wife, and it's one of our favorite spots to, to go whenever we're in L.A. And uh, uh, I tell you, it's, it's a really nice room, too. Nice and open. It's not too big, not too small. And it, it, even if you're sitting in, towards the middle in the back, you feel like you can touch the person on stage. So it's a, it was a great, must have been a nice experience in that room. Yeah. It was, which takes me to another story. <laughs> this goes on and on, and this one is with James Taylor. Uh-huh. And it was an amazing lesson that we learned, because the first year I went out with James, well, a little quick history, 1973-1975, I was playing with Carol King. Okay. And in 1975, James Taylor came out and did a couple of songs with mm-hmm. Carol. Mm-hmm. That's how I met James. I followed oh, Okay. But... The thing that was so funny is we ended up, they wanted to record the song How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. And since I was like the Motown guy. Right, yeah. It was like, can you play this song? It's like, yeah, yeah, that's real easy. (laughs) So we went and did it. The song became a hit for James Taylor. And uh, he took out the band that did the recording. And that's the same thing Carole King did. When she went on her tour, she took recording musicians, not band musicians. Our guys, you know, our pickup band is what we call it. Okay. But the thing that was so amazing when you were talking about being able to touch people, I think the best shows we had with James Taylor when we were playing smaller theaters like the Beacon Theater in New York right. or the Stanley. As the next records got bigger, we started playing like Hostra Arena and places. And it was amazing because... We figured out something even economically. It's more profitable to go into a town and play like a three to seven thousand seat theater and play it four nights in a row than it is to go try to play a twenty thousand seat arena. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the logistics of doing that is so much more taxing right. exactly. and expensive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other thing that I truly miss about music is getting it where people are close enough to where you can relate to them as opposed to what I call piping music out to them in the 80th or the 200th row at the top of an arena. <laughs> Great, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, you brought up James Taylor, and uh, that was actually our next uh, next series of questions here. And we, uh, um, you know, his, his music has, uh, you know, a very simple... You know, kind of intimate, uh, very personable sort of feel to it, you know, a very original approach. And it seems that, you know, from the early work that you did with him, that, you know, your styles, your style really fit in well with what he was doing at the time. Would would you say that's safe to say? Oh, without a doubt. There are certain people, when you hear them, it's like, you know what? They'd be fun to play with. It's just, And that's a heartfelt thing. Music always touches you. In the heart. Mm-hmm. And when somebody you hear, you say, you know what, I understand on a personal level what it is they're doing musically. That's someone that you can work together with. And I've had that happen on occasions where I'd say in my mind, I think I'd really like to play with them. And sure enough, it happened. And I can give you like three occasions. One was with Hall and Oates because I like some of the stuff they mm-hmm. did. I did Sarah Smile. Right, right. Sarah Smile with them. And they're still playing that record. The oh, other one yeah. was with uh, Seals and Cross. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I did the uh, Summer Breeze. In fact, I did that whole record, the Hummingbird record. Sure, right, sure, right. sure. I but remember that. it was so much fun because musically you could relate. Yeah. And it happened once again in this last year. About two years ago, I heard a saxophone player named Michael Lincoln. And there are lots of saxophone players that are out, and they all play well. But some of them, when they play, it's like, you know what, I can feel what he's doing. Yeah. And in my mind, I said, you know what, him I'd like to work with or write songs with. Yeah. And this was the most amazing situation. There was a gentleman who lives in the same building that I live in who is a guitar player. And he was at a restaurant. And this guy was talking, and the guy, they talked and said, oh, yeah, I'm in music. I do music, too. And the guy says, hey, man, have you ever heard of a guy named Clarence McDonald? (laughs) And he laughed. He says, he's a friend of mine. He lives in my building. The guy was Michael Lincoln. Oh, wow. And as it turned out, we've written 
a couple of we've gotten together five times and we've written two songs <laughs> one of which is on his new album heat that's out now uh-huh. but that's always i think that's the thing that people don't see a lot of times there is an electrical chemical and emotional connection that makes music work uh, i agree you know it's funny you mentioned about uh rick asked you the question about you know your musical approach sort of being parallel to where james was going with his his work and uh, I've always had an affinity towards, you know, James was uh, pretty much acoustic guitar driven type of music, you know. And there's nothing that fits better. I mean, when you think of tracks like, uh, you know, Secret of Life, and you've worked on all these on songs um, that that just marry a Fender Rhodes to an acoustic guitar. I'm like, that just sends me, man. I, that that goes back to basic elementary, great, nice uh, music that is supposed to happen together. And I I just I just I can appreciate the the tracks that you 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 played on the the piano parts on how sweet it is were were. Purely genius. I mean, they were so rhythmic. They were they carried the song without the piano parts. You know, uh, the way you played those, it it just didn't really didn't make it because it wasn't hard driven guitar stuff. It was piano. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. the thing that happens, and this goes back to learning to play in church. Mm-hmm. You learn how to accompany. Yeah. Because music is a conversation. You talk, then you listen, then somebody else talks, and you listen. And if you approach music that way then it works. And the other thing is between Russ Conkle, Luis Galar, Danny Korchbar, it was a great compliment of there were so many different guys from so many different places, Yeah. but you put it all together and you put it in with the courtesy of everyone seeing what everyone else brought to the occasion. Mm-hmm. That's what made the music special. And the thing I love about it, the test of good music is are they playing it 30 or 40 years later? Are they right. still you, liking it? Bingo, because that right. is the real test. Yeah. The other thing is, James, and I always call it the real nice country boy. He just <laughs> likes to play. He likes to get to your heart. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you never hear him playing a lot of notes. He's not trying to do that. He's not trying to show how much he knows. He's just trying to paint a picture for you that's right. that gets inside of where you live. And he does. And yes. that's the reason after all of these years, he's still a popular artist. Oh, yeah. Yes, he is. You mentioned uh, two names there a minute ago, Russ Kunkel and Lee Sklar. And uh, both of those guys we've had on our show. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you, you said you've got lots of stories to tell. G- give me a short, interesting story about an experience with Lee Sklar and Russ Kunkel. Yes, the first one I'll tell you about is Russ Kunkel. We were working with James Taylor. I was producing Bill Withers. Uh-huh. And it's called Combinations Again. Uh-huh. Russ Conkle was the drummer on the song Lovely Day with Bill Withers. Right. And nobody would have ever understood the connection, but it was because I'm producing Bill Withers, I'm out performing with James Taylor. <laughs> but the song Lovely Day wasn't what you would call a typical R&B song. It was just basically a Lovely Day song, which is exactly where Russ Conkle was. <laughs> Once again, it's personalities and human beings put together are what make the music. So, yeah, the funniest Russ Conkle story was to have him come in and play on the Bill Withers album. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's great. Lee Scalar. Now, Lee, first of all, he's a collector of antique cards. Oh, right. oh yeah. He lives yeah. over in Pasadena, very close to the Rose Bowl. Yeah. We don't see each other enough, but I'll tell you the part that's really amazing, and I'll send you a picture on it because we ran into each other Two years ago at the NAM show, which is a um, right. music uh, merchandiser show sure. out in Anaheim, and we had to laugh because my hair is completely gray and his beard is completely <laughs> gray. So we took a picture together and we still laugh about it. It's just Lee is the kind of guy, he's the ultimate sweetheart. And yeah. the thing I'd like to say about him musically, this is a guy who always plays just enough notes to make you happy. Uh-huh. You never hear Lee, and he can play as many as you need to hear. Oh, yeah. He just had, it's called taste. Mm-hmm. He has a lots of taste. Yes, he does. Yeah. That's what makes what he does work so well. 
you know, I had the the wonderful privilege, and I know Lee, you're probably listening to this, but this past summer I had uh, the the nice uh, privilege of spending an afternoon with him at his home and seeing his collection of of antiques. And the guy's a perennial, amazing collector of yeah. of different artifacts. And I think I've posted a couple of things on uh, on uh, I think um, our the Facebook site, I Facebook, think. yeah, yeah. And there'll be more to come. But you're right; he is so gracious and I think so welcoming that I don't think there's anyone that he won't uh, turn away. I think he's uh, uh, he's definitely like a people lover, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Which is why he stays in the business so long. You the got good it. folks hang around. The others always disappear. Yep, you're de- definitely right. Um, you produced uh, and arranged uh, and played keyboards on uh, one of the a famous R&B hit uh, where the singer holds a note for a record 18 seconds. Tell us who this is, please. Yep, it's Bill <laughs> along with Russ Conkle playing drums. Yeah. August, lovely day. Exactly. And I have a quick story for that one, too. Please. Because I won't mention the person's name, but one of the rap artists wanted to take the song and change it to a term that I won't use on the radio, but mm-hmm. it would have been anything but lovely day. Uh-huh. And Bill just declined the use, even though it was a very popular artist. It mm-hmm. could have made us a lots of money. Right. It was just not something that we wanted to have happen to the song. And that that goes back to your uh, your word that you said that uh, used taste. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing, and I think a lot of it is a reflection of the times. Yeah. Music was more uplifting, and I'm seeing a trend now where it's going back that way. I think a lot of the youth had very troubled times, and a lot of the music that came out over the last ten or twelve years was about the turmoil in their lives, which because music basically reflects the society. And I'm hoping that we are getting a better look and getting more compassionate and getting back to values that made the songs that we did popular. Because that's the thing about the Motown songs and a lot of the great classic hits. They were always about uplifting the human spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. I, this kind of goes back to a question I had earlier about arranging. And, uh, you know, I've always thought that it takes a real gift to arrange for horns. And, uh, in fact, there's there's some names that come to mind that, that are, are very good horn arrangers like Jerry Hay and Tom Scott and, you know, Roy Hargrove. But but you arranged for the, for the Memphis horns. I think you touched on that earlier. And what's the, what's the key to arranging great horn parts? Knowing how to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. The, the the smartest thing is knowing how to not to do too much. And speaking of Tom Scott, I saw him last weekend uh-huh. at Catalina Bar and Grill. He was playing mm-hmm. uh, with a, a singer, Paulette Mac Williams. And uh, Tom and I don't see enough of each other. But yeah, Memphis Horns. In fact, that was fun because you listen to what people do well, and then you just try to go along that path and then refine it, rather than mm-hmm. trying to reinvent the wheel. Just roll the one you got in front of you. Right. And a quick Tom Scott story, because he goes back, that was the song, Will It Go Round in Circles? Oh, yeah, right. And I arranged, right. the, uh, that was Billy Preston, exactly. and I arranged the horns on that one, and Tom Scott was the saxophone player. There we go. Look at that. It's all connected. Yep. It's, that's the point I'm making. Almost everything is connected to something else that's connected to something else. The music business is a very small community. Most people may think it's big, but it isn't. And the connections are numerous. And frequent. Yeah. We hear that a lot on, on podcasts we've done with uh, many of our guests. Yeah. They, you know, it's, it's a, it is a small community and it's a small world. And it seems like these guys all, uh, you know, all the, all the good players, they all seem to interconnect with one, one another at some point. Yeah. It's good spirits. You know, yeah. always of a, playing is just an extension of what you are. And the good players are basically usually good people. Mm-hmm. You know, Clarence, you're you're definitely a multi generationalist uh, when it comes down to arranging and producing, and and by that you've pr- you've played with. I mean, even people that we haven't mentioned on this podcast is you know Aretha Streisand, Boss Gags, JT, of course, Carly Simon. You mentioned Cat Stevens, but and even Justin Timberlake. But you even into the the jazz with huge groove. I mean, um, the diversity of the music that you sink your teeth into. What what. Uh, you know, how do you select your projects? How do they typically come to you? Just is this word of mouth that people come to you and say, "Hey, look, this is a job for Clarence, and only he can do it." How how do you go by, uh, you know, getting your? It's amazing. A lots of it, and I call that the magic of real life. Something happens, and a feeling goes out, and it relates to something you've done and a personal here, and it's like, okay, I like the way that affected me or touched me. So let me see if it'll work in this scenario because that's what it was with Huge Groove, actually. 
another funny story. Oh, here goes another one. <laughs> Huge call because he liked, uh, I'm trying to think, it was another Bill Withers song. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, you know, I'd really like to find the, the string arranger on that one because I like the way that worked. And then he called me back. He says, I'm really embarrassed. He says, I didn't know you were the string arranger. I said, well, don't be embarrassed because I didn't remember that I had done it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really how it works. Yeah, right? exactly. Well, you know, uh, we really appreciate uh, all the time you've spent with us here, Clarence. And I just have one more question, and that's uh, what kinds of projects are you working on now? And what's coming up uh, for your palette of work here in 2009? Okay. Well, I guess the first thing, and I never thought I'd be doing this in mid-60s, is I'm going to do... Well, I'm going to do a solo piano album. I'm going to do another album with um, Evolution, so you can look out for Clarence McDonald and Evolution again soon. And now that that CD has just come out in December, I'm going to be spending some time promoting the Live from Hollywood CD on Clarence McDonald and Evolution. Great. Very cool. Why don't you take a second here and do some promoting of that album? Tell us where we can find that. Exactly. It's on CD Baby. Okay. And I believe they're going to put it into retail stores. I don't know exactly what their plan is, but to get it, go to CD Baby and okay. just type in Clarence McDonald, and you'll find me right there waiting to be taken into your home. <laughs> <laughs> and if they want to know more about uh, Clarence McDonald, your bio and information about you, they can go to your website, which is is uh, just ClarenceMcDonald.com. It's a wonderful site. People it is a will good enjoy site. it. Yeah, it's really informative. And I think, uh, I think well, you, you can sort of fill in the rest of the pieces, the things that we haven't covered here, but Clarence McDonald has been an incredible uh, musician over the years, and he continues to be an impactful icon in today's music. So, Clarence, thank you for being with us, and uh, and we'll keep in touch with you, okay? Please, let's stay in touch. It's been my pleasure, and I hope we get a chance to do this again. Thanks so much, Clarence. All right. Good day to you. All right. Take care. Talk to you later. Thanks once again to Clarence McDonald for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Be sure to join us again on March 2nd for another episode of Inside Music Cast, featuring bassist Carlitos Del Puerto. For more information about Inside Music Cast, check out our website at InsideMusicCast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and MySpace. We'd love to hear from you, and we always take our listeners' input and suggestions into consideration. So drop us an email anytime at input at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.